Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Hi, Kika. Very nice to meet you. Just kidding. I know you really, really well, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. So thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Of course, every single week, we always love to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Um, do you need that from me? I do. I need it from you. I could do it, but it wouldn't be as as genuine. Okay. Um, well, yeah. So I, um, I got to be... <laughs> feel like this is a long journey. This is the kind Let's of culmination of, of many years of thinking about like, where is my space in science going to be? So I, um, I thought I was going to do veterinary science. I thought I was maybe going to be a vet. I discovered research and conservation and got really passionate about trying to do work that matters. Um, so I went to grad school and finished my PhD in ecology, but realized um, you know, maybe being a data collector wasn't the most impactful path I could choose. And so I, I got excited about media and storytelling and really helping scientists get their message out to the public and build public support for their work and for science broadly. And, uh, and that's where I find myself now, which is owning my own science media company, uh, we are kind of like a PR firm for scientists, but I don't think our clients would um, would understand that term quite so much. Mm -hmm. You know, we really just help do um, sharing stories about science with the public. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what is ecology and why you're interested in it to begin with. Yeah. Um, so ecology, I think, is... It, it's kind of the modern form of biology. I mean, biology is just like the study of life broadly. And it used to like historically biology was a very taxonomic approach and trying to identify the species that we have and understand the way that they function and, and the way that they work as individuals. And I think just, you know, a couple hundred years of that has gotten us to this place where like, to understand the way any organism works, you have to take into account the environmental context, the interactions with other species, um, you know, more and more, you have to understand how they're responding to human driven change, changes to the landscape, changes to the climate. Um, that is all part of biology. Now you can't really just study an organism in isolation because you will have missed the big picture. So ecology is the study of organisms and their environmental interactions. Um, but it's really just kind of this whole holistic approach to studying the way nature works. Um, and it can still be at the scale of an individual and behavior, um, but it's always taking into account like the conditions in which those things evolved and the conditions they find themselves in now. So I think it's like the most exciting field in science ever. And it's a really crazy time to be doing ecological work because of all this change. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's wild. Did you have like a specific like thesis or something you were working on when you're doing your PhD? Um, yep. So I am a herpetologist 
by passion and training. So reptiles and amphibians, snakes, lizards, frogs. Um, I want to do conservation work around those groups. And so I was looking at a variety of labs for my PhD. Um, I was looking at uh, one with these uh, like desert lizards in Namibia, and then this project in Australia that um, was a forest, a deforestation experiment, basically. Um, it had been going for 35 years. They were looking to revive the project to um, bring new and modern questions to this long-standing experiment. And I started getting really excited about that. So it's kind of like, you know, I got excited about, the, you know, this is how grad school works. You get excited about the question first, and then you figure mm-hmm. out like, where, where am I going to go to do this work? Who's doing this work? Um, so that's what brought me to Boulder is this Australian researcher at the university, Kendi Davies. She is kind of a community ecologist. She was working on beetles and uh, there are just like hundreds of beetles in this system. And I wanted to come in and start working on lizards. So for 35 years, they had been sampling insects and these lizards just kept falling into the traps, but no one had really looked at them or studied what was going on. So that was the project for me. So I got to come in, plus it meant going to Australia, you know, every couple months uh, to be out in the bush sampling lizards and and, um, running this experiment, which was really exciting. So you spent five years essentially doing research and collecting data, right? That's kind of what you do with your PhD, analyzing all that stuff and trying to yeah, have a positive impact on that specific environment that you were working in, or at least figure out how you could potentially do that. I'm really curious, like where your head was at when you were finishing up your PhD and how you just like came to this conclusion like that, like, oh, I need to kind of start my own business. Yeah. That's a good question. Well, and I would even say, you know, working on a long-term study like that is interesting because half of the work is actually picking up the experiment and running it and collecting data now. But then the other half is trying to figure out where like 30 years of lizard data has gone and going back and actually retracing all of this old information. And so for me, it was going through these jars and jars of dead lizards awesome yeah that had just been like saved but never you know categorized and actually that's not true a herpetologist had tagged them identified them and put them in jars but yeah we went in and scanned every single individual that had ever been trapped since 1983 um, and started measuring their bodies and and doing all these like you know weird data collection techniques so I was really interested in physiology and changes in body size so anyway you know that's a long story so so once that was kind of wrapping up you you face this this precipice in science where it's like okay you know grad school is ending what are you going to do now you've got a few different options you could continue the current track which is like try and find another postdoc and then another postdoc and build up an accumulation of publications that is large enough to get you a position at a university to go be a professor. Um, But generally the life of an academic was getting less and less appealing to me the longer I was in science. Mm. Um, So I I didn't really want to write my own grants. I didn't want to Okay. Why, why is that? I'm just, why was it becoming less and less appealing? 
Well, I feel like this is a this is true of any job. The higher up you go, the farther removed you are from the things you loved most about the position when you started. Hmm. So the higher you go in academia, the further away you get from like being the field researcher. Yeah, which is for you picking up the snakes. Exactly. And looking at them going and catching the animals and um, being in the field, you know, the higher up you go, the more you become like the paper writer, the mentor, the teacher, the, the funder. Um, And so I really love ecological research at the ground level, but I don't love the life of being a scientist. Um, And so, yeah, I, I also wanted something a little bit faster you know, to study a system, you have to, you have to study it for, you know, 35 years to get a sense of what's going on at all, to get any baseline understanding of how a system operates. These are decadal processes. And I just like, didn't really have the attention span to study one question for 30 years. I kind of need like, you know, every six months, I'm pretty ready to move on to something new. Um, And that is not a trait for, that is not necessarily the trait of a great scientist, a short mm-hmm. attention span is not really <laughs> ideal. Sure. Um, so yeah, I was trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? Science communication is this developing field. Um, I think we intrinsically used to like understand that communication was a part of science, like, you know, writing books and I'm thinking of, you know, not Darwin so much, but um I don't know, all of these great scientists throughout time were also great orators and great writers and great storytellers. And somehow we kind of lost that. And scientists got increasingly siloed into like, you just sit in a lab and collect data objectively. Don't bring story into the mix. And that Mm -hmm. has been a disservice to science for so long. So things are changing now and we're realizing like, holy sheesh, in the days of social media, science misinformation is everywhere. Communication about science, given climate change, given COVID, given vaccines broadly, like it has never been more important than it is now because any idiot can write a blog and pretend that they know something about how science works And we have to counteract that with fact, you know? Yeah. So there, you know, even as I was going through grad school, there was this big awakening of like, holy smoke, science communication is a thing. It's a field. It's an expertise. You must be trained in it. We must study the science of science communication to understand like, why has climate change communication failed so badly? Why Mm -hmm. have we had such little action despite a 97% consensus amongst the scientific community. Like what is going on with our communication that things are going so badly? So I started getting really interested in those types of questions and um, doing workshops in like the science of science communication. And um, that's, that's what uh, sort of showed me like, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world that's just opening up. Um, it's the wild west a little bit, you know, now people are actually getting PhDs in science communication. Um, but at the time it was a pretty new idea. So, and you were enthralled with it. So, so tell me what, what is impact media lab? What what do you do? And I like, it's just amazing to me that you went from like 
to doing research to like starting a business, but like I can see the connection now. So, so what is Impact Media Lab? Yeah. So Impact Media Lab, I mean, I took a long time to think about a name that made sense for what we do. The goal of everything is impact. It's taking science and it's leading, you know, producing real world change from science. Um, the media part is that, you know, we are very multimedia by nature. It's a creative agency. So we explore documentary film and museum exhibits and digital experiences. And it's kind of you know, the media part is supposed to be experimental by nature. So, you know, I like to think of us as a lab in the sense that we're going to try a bunch of stuff and it's okay if we fail. It's okay if we try something new. It's okay if we, you know, like we're going to be scientific. We're going to be scientists about this whole like impact thing. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do the best we can and try it and study it and bring big teams of people to tackle these questions and so, um, so yeah, on the surface level, it, it's a creative agency, but a, it has all these value systems about, you know, we're, we're trying to help people develop an appreciation for science, develop support for science in the public, help scientists be empowered to be real people and not just objective data collecting robots, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and amongst that, there are all these indirect benefits of broadening who can see themselves as a scientist. You know, when you start to see lots of real people who look different and have different experiences and different backgrounds, and we're all scientists, then it opens up the doors for anyone to see themselves in science. You know, it, it's, um, it's a very purpose-driven media company, I think. Love it. Definitely. How do you go, guys, go about creating impact? How do you uh, like pragmatically elevate the voices of these scientists? What kind of like projects do you guys take on? Yeah, well, I would say we have the immediate, the immediate projects, and then the long-term projects. The long-term projects are that you know we want to help these scientists get um, documentary films that go completely viral and change the way everyone sees their field. That's the long-term goal for every client. But the immediate mm -hmm. need is that we start with just really solid branding strategy, uh, communication work. So we start with them to figure out like, yeah, who are you as a person? Who are you as a scientist? How do we bring those two together? Let's design a logo. Let's design a brand. Let's think through like what are the narratives in your work and how can we talk about those in a way that's going to be really compelling to the public and non-scientists? Um, I mean, I think for the, for this scientist every day, the communication challenges are things like jargon. How do we not use these big complex words mm -hmm. that you have to be in the field to understand so impact sounds really glamorous because I, I often imagine like viral videos and, interactive museum exhibits but a lot of the day-to-day -day is really helping like how are you going to tell your story every day to the person you meet on the plane or the bus or your family or your friends and that starts with really simple work around language and story and so that's where we start definitely one of the things I always really liked or I thought I think is interesting is the idea that if you're truly like a master or an expert at what you do you could like explain it to like a fourth grader, you know, that's how you know that you really know what you're talking about. I don't know. I forget where I heard that from, but I think that so rings true, you know? 
well, I would say that it takes a lot of practice to explain what you're doing to a fourth grader. I would, I would counter to say these scientists are complete experts, um, but they are so entrenched in a community that uses an entirely different language. Um, and sometimes they have lost the ability to talk to anyone about their work yeah. outside of the community because they're so entrenched in this language. And so it, it often feels like, oh my gosh, I feel like we're translators and it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, they are smart and they are experts, but they're just not exposed to the public in their communication. You write papers for other scientists. You design a website with language for other scientists. You're only trying to impress reviewers and colleagues and and it is like, when is the last time you talked to a fourth grader about what you do, right. you know? And I think that's a large part of the problem. Uh, you know, we've done some stuff that's like TED Talk consulting, where it is like, we have to just sit down and say, that word is confusing. That word makes a lot of assumptions about people's educational background. You know, like when you say evolution, everybody has different ideas about what you mean. So when we talk about evolutionary consequences of physiological changes driven by climate change, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We have to just pause right there and get into like, what are we actually talking about? We're talking about a, an arm being different or a leg being different. And that is driven by changes in DNA, which are driven by changes in the climate. You ex like we have to step mm -hmm. back so many layers. Um, so I do this activity with scientists and workshops and stuff where we use it's there is this um, it's almost like a translator. It's called the Upgoer Five, and it basically has pulled out the thousand most common words in the English language. And then we have them try and describe their science using this translator, because it'll say like, you can't say forest, forest, you know, I'm a fragmentation, my, my whole deforestation experiment, like, okay, how am I going to talk about this? If I can't say deforestation, and in fact, I can't even say forest, and I can't say habitat, I can't say fragmentation, and I can say lizard, but that's like it, what, are, how am I going to even talk about this? Got to be tactful. You got to be tactful. And there is something that happens when you start to peel away these, these words that have so much assumption built into them, like fragmentation. I assume that, you know, I'm talking about this forest that was historically continuous and humans have gone in and carved it up into a million pieces. And there are understood ecological consequences of that. Like I use one word to describe this whole story that you know or don't know is implied in that word. And so it is like, once you shed that word, how are we going to share this story? Well, we can talk about like, there were these trees and they got cut down and everybody understands that, you know? Yeah. And when you cut down a tree, you expose all of the soil and, and animals to sun and now they're hot and there is no shade and that's going to make all of these impacts. And 
So it is like, I don't know, we do these activities that I find like so enlightening to help people understand like, oh my gosh, it's hard to see we're fish in the bowl. We don't see the water kind of thing. So, yeah, well, it's so, it's so challenging to have true impact because if you want to have a large impact, you have to be willing to connect, try and connect with everyone. And while you're talking through all this, I'm thinking about how I'm like sitting in my apartment, writing all my ideas down in the whiteboard. I'm like, okay, this is like, this is the crux of my business. And then it has like part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then, I, and then like, I take a second, I look back and I'm like, okay, I don't need this word. This is just going to confuse someone. It's like, how can you like shape like, or carve things down? So they're really focused so people can get the message right away. And that's, if you can connect with lots and lots of people, if people can easily spread your idea without needing like a scientist to come in and explain it, if you can explain it to one person and they can explain it to your friend, that's how you can actually get like a fire going. But um, yeah, so one thing I want to ask you about is, is why you think storytelling is so effective at like communicating stuff like this. Yeah. Um, well, I, I wish I could tell you that I was, um, that I have done all of the psychological research, but I sort of just lean on this statement that it works, like it works. The human, yeah, that the human brain, um, you know, it, it often like it can't conceptualize numbers and scale. And, um, that story is the way we have communicated important information across human history. Like, story and characters and narrative is the way we have always like driven behavior and conveyed information and for for science to take a non-story approach was always like never gonna work and again I feel like historically scientists understood that and did a lot more storytelling in their work um but then I could speculate on somehow where that, how that got lost. But anyway, there's been a big reckoning in science that we need to, to use storytelling and narrative um, because it, it's the way human brains are hardwired to understand, you know, and, and that's just to understand if you actually want to translate that to changing people's behaviors, then you get into these deeper layers of you, you have to use story because it, that builds trust and you have to build trust if you want to talk about changing someone's behavior. And there are all these sort of value systems that scientists really haven't used much. Like, oh, the idea of building trust, like, oh gosh, that sounds really scary. <laughs> can't I just like, can't I just put numbers in front of That's people? The data. And help? It's just the data. Yeah. Doesn't the data just work? And I think, you know, for a long time, we really hoped that humans were logical thinkers, but they're not, they're emotional Emotion. thinkers. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about how like some of the most, the fame, most famous movies or most like movies that have changed culture, like Star Wars or the Matrix or Harry Potter, they have these like you might not have realized it, but they have these kind of blank slate main characters. They don't have like a lot of personality. Like surely, like, you know, Harry Potter is brave. Luke, Luke Skywalker is brave. Neo, but Neo, like specifically like Neo from the Matrix is just this plain guy. And the the whole story is the idea of it is that you can anyone can be like the one. You know what I mean? If you've been guessing, you've seen yeah. the Matrix, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah. that's that's what these characters are made for. And you go through this whole story so that you, the audience, get to feel like you're Neo. And I think communicating that with science could be, I mean, really, really impactful to show people like, hey, here's all this data about 
the impacts humans have on the environment, um, you have this opportunity to push a button or create an input and, and make the world better. I don't know. That's just, that's what I jump to when I think about this kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think, I think scientists, I mean, they should be put on a pedestal because they are incredibly smart, incredibly passionate people, but not too much. They are not like untouchable geniuses, you know, they are smart people who have worked really hard, but they're not any different than anybody else. And so I think a lot of the work we do too is showing like scientists are normal people with extraordinary skills because they worked really hard. They're not Mm -hmm. like some crazy untouchable genius thing that you could never be. They're way more like Neo than you might imagine. They just Mm -hmm. practice really hard and stay in school a really long time. And you could do that too, if you want. So, yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest issues with the way we, we communicate like scientific literature and why it doesn't, it just doesn't seem to resonate with like the average person, especially when it comes to like ecological issues, which you and I are very passionate about. Yeah. Um, well, I think two problems. Number one, we assume that the data is just going to do all the work for you. You know, it's like, look, and here's this graph. It looks like this, like CO2 global temperatures, like what, what more needs to be said. And yeah, I think, you know, we just like, we just hoped that the data would be enough. Like species are going extinct. Isn't that enough? Well, it's not because people, people get overwhelmed. People don't know where to start. Um, Like I, I think, well, now we're on, now we're getting into a new problem. I think ecologists for a long time have been too scared to tell people what to do about it. These are huge problems and they're often very far away. Um, It's like, okay, how, you know, as an ecologist, I've, I've studied polar bears. All I can tell you is that, you know, they're getting weak, they're getting fatigued, they're swimming 10 times more than they used to. Um, Their food is disappearing. Like all I can tell you are these facts. I can't tell you what you in Colorado can do to help this polar bear because that's like overreaching. Um, So there's a lot of us in ecology that are saying like, it's okay to overreach and think about like, all right, it's science. It's imperfect. We're just going to use the best data we have today to make the best recommendation we can today and know that it's an iterative process. Um, as we have, yes, but as we have seen, the public is very skeptical of iterative processes. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, you told me I didn't need to wear a mask. And now you tell me I do need to wear a mask and the iterative process of science and collecting more evidence to test your ideas. Like that is scary to the public. And so Mm -hmm. that's hard for scientists to figure out like, well, how do we do this? Science is intrinsically iterative. And the public yeah. wants, like, I want the one answer that's never going to change. Like, that's not how science works. So it's hard. It's just really hard to do. I mean, it's really hard. I haven't talked about like this in like, I want to say like 40 episodes, like the really the core of science is that we actually know way less than we don't. Is that right? Yes. We know way, way less than we don't. And 
like really trying to get the average person to hold on to that idea is truly terrifying to be like, cause at PA, like you said, people want like direction so they can go and just do their thing. But like, it's really not, it's not how the world works. It's not how science works. So I wonder how we can use communication to not mislead people, but to kind of at least get us going down that right path. I don't know. Well, what, yeah. what have you, what have you learned from doing this work? Well, there is some discussion about like science needs to be more honest about the places it has failed. Um, no one is good about talk. No one is good at talking about failure, and that is science and the scientific community included. Um, and you can because we don't talk about failure enough. Then anytime there is failure, like a Nature paper gets retracted because the scientist was fudging the data, that happens. That's like that is a competitive space where people are trying to get ahead and get that Harvard job. And like, that's kind of a natural product of people sucks. Yeah. But um, you know, scientists needs to own those mistakes, be clear about it because the public needs to be able to trust us. And if we're not honest, then we're not trust trustworthy. Uh, but I think a lot of, I mean, I would hope a lot of the work that we're doing and a lot, a lot of the work of other science communicators is just, trying to yeah, help the public develop a personal relationship with science, know a scientist, identify a scientist, see that scientists are normal, flawed people. And sometimes they try and cheat the system like other people do too. But I think once you, yeah, once you have that connection, then you, you just like, you know it better and you understand where it works really well and, and its flaws. The reality is science is the best system we have for developing knowledge. Right. It's, it's the best system we've got. It's not perfect. And that's okay. It does a pretty good job most of the time. And it's the best system that we've had. And it's lasted this long. Um, so dig into making it better instead of sitting around and saying it's not perfect. But I think you have to you have to know, you have to understand how science works to be able to say that. And I think just, you know, people have been excluded and left out. And when scientists use language that keeps people out, then they're never going to develop that connection. Right. So cool. So can you tell me a little bit about this journey? Are you coming to the end of your, your fifth year in business? Is that right? I am coming up on the beginning of my, yeah, let's see, three, six years in May. 2016. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Four or five. It'll be six what? years in May. Okay. So I, I know all about how successful your business is, but I want, I want you to kind of tell the audience about like some of the projects that you've worked on and how, how your, your journey from just graduating school to now having this business where you have a whole team working for you and you're working with on all these different projects, like favorite moments, how it's gone from just kind of an idea to like this real living company now. Yeah. Um, I remember it probably took two years before I would use the word founder, entrepreneur, starting my own business. Like those words just seemed so far away from my day-to-day -day experience of being a person at a laptop, nursing a baby and typing with the other hand, you know, legendary. Yeah. I just like did not feel like a real business or the real way that anybody does it. And uh, the, the farther I've gone in my entrepreneurial journey, the more I've realized like, oh, it often looks like this. It's sloppy. Yeah. It's messy. It's you working at weird hours around your day job or around parenting or around whatever you need to do to pay the bills in the beginning. 
Um, so I think now I'm comfortable with like, oh yeah, that was still a business at that time. But, but as a scientist branching out into this weird space, I didn't really understand. Um, I just couldn't say, I just couldn't say the words. If people asked what I did, I would just stumble and not really reply. Um, so yeah, and we're doing it. I was doing it. And, and, um, in the beginning, I relied very heavily on the network that I had from my time in science. There were some very important people that trusted me and took a risk when we had no portfolio and I owe them for everything. The first film we made, you know, the first person, Sharon Collins, uh, a professor at CU Boulder, um, she is amazing. And she was willing to just trust that this like person who's never made a film and this company that doesn't have a portfolio is going to do a good job with her story and make a good film. And sounds familiar. Yeah. So it is like, you just have to kind of really, tr- I, I don't know. There are these people that, that in the beginning trusted us and took the risk and I owe them everything because once one person has done it, then you have a portfolio to market to others. And so it has just been, slow, organic growth, you know, one person trusting us after the other until we have accumulated this body of work. And now we've got, you know, hundreds of things we can show people from film series to museum exhibits, to digital experiences, to websites, to logos, to illustrations, to animated videos. Like now, if you, if you have a science need, I probably have a product I could show you that we've done. Um, And and, um, but it's, it's taken a long time to get there. Um, I think one thing that I did early on that was smart was contracting with, uh, talented people, um, that cost a lot of money in the beginning. And it was very scary to do, but, um, the fact that we hired or contracted with good people who delivered incredible products for us. Um, meant that like from the beginning, our portfolio didn't suck. And that I feel like, oh, that was really smart. Yeah. So like when we needed to make our first film, we hired established really quality filmmakers to work with. And so then our first film was good. And that was a better launching point than if I would have tried to wing it myself and like Mm -hmm. sussed it out and kind of wasted people's money. So um, yeah. Well, you can speak the talk of the scientists and then you brought in the people that can do the work to elevate them, which is really, you were kind of, yeah, I, I see similarities. This is, you see yourself as a vessel to elevate the, the stuff that you love and you use talented people to do that. And now you've kind of cultivated this team together of people who are all passionate about the same stuff that can do the work that needs to get done. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in the beginning, it's like, okay, this contractor, this contractor, this contractor. But after a while, you start to attract attention. And Mm -hmm. then we started to get people reaching out to us and being like, oh, I'm a scientist who makes films, or I'm a scientist who does illustration, or I'm a scientist who does these things. And then we were able to build a core team of creators um, that are passionate about the work, that have seen the company and were attracted by the values and so now we just have this like powerhouse creative team and, and they could just do anything. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's a turning point for us as a business. Yeah. Well, what I love about your story is that it shows that like anyone can take like their passion 
and like create a business out of it. You just have to be creative and see what the market needs and then just go out there and just provide value to people and just kind of not give up, keep going. And yeah, it's, I think it's so important to have that mission, this idea that like you want people to have, want people to know about the, the scientific, whatever literature that's going on, but you want them to actually understand it and not be overloaded with jargon. So I think it's really cool. Uh, curious what your like day-to-day workflow kind of looks like. Yeah. Um, well, and I will say it, I have been surprised a lot of the, a lot of the communication work that we do. Again, I sort of, I, I had very different ideas about what the company would be when I started thinking Naturally. that like, oh, most communication is going to be for the public or for kids or for, and actually it's not. I think mm-hmm. we have, again, needed to start at something more fundamental, which is scientists actually struggle to even talk to their colleagues. They are so siloed. Mm. There's so much deeper down that hole than I realized where it's like, oh, when I talk, you know, I, I'm a I'm a fragmentation ecologist. When I talk to a community ecologist and they're bringing up like beta and alpha and gamma diversity, I don't even know what they're talking about. And it's like, oh Lord. First, we actually are starting with like, let's get you to a place where you can talk to your colleagues from any field. Mm. Um, And that, that is where most of our clients are, is actually just communicating with a broad academic audience where you can assume some level of biological training, but not a PhD in this single plant. Right. Um, so, and then again, I'm hoping, you know, everybody's on that five-year plan by year three, four, and five, when we're making films for these people, we're ready to think about like, okay, now it's time to talk to the public. And that is the next level of removing the, the filters and jargon and, um, but I would say most of our clients really aren't there yet. Which so are you kind of like managing a million projects at once? Are you like the coordinator for everyone kind of thing? Yeah. Um, we now have a project manager. Thank God. Because yeah, <laughs> we, we have, uh, yeah, I don't know, anywhere from like 10 to 30 projects at various stages of Sick. various, yeah, like We've got, you know, illustration projects. We've got brand design projects. We've got websites. We've got films. We've got grants. Occasionally we write grants with scientists to fund the work we want to do. Some of that bigger impact work where we want a bigger budget. That's like, okay, we get in at the ground level. You're writing a grant for your work. Let's put us in there to run this really crazy idea that we've been wanting to do where we project weird um weird like membrane textures onto buildings around the city. And then we do this whole walking tour and, you know, it's like, you still have these really weird ideas for crazy science that is hyper impactful. Love it. Um, and those are big budgets. So, so a lot of times too, it's like, yeah, okay. We wrote four grants last year. Where, where are those at in, in terms of funding or not funding um, the ideas and the planning. And so it's, there's just a million things going on, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, now we have a project manager and we're learning software like monday.com. I'm going to put in the biggest plug for Monday because that has changed, changed my life because these projects lived on my board or in my notebooks. And uh, now we have a system where everybody can see all the projects going and where we are and who's assigned to what and what the deadlines are. And, and that has radically changed our productivity and then having a person who's 
sole job is to kind of manage the boards and the team that has liberated me to think more about the business and where we're going and what, what kinds of weirder projects we want to be doing. And so, and that is my next question. Where, where are you, where are you, where are you headed? What's your long-term vision? Curious. Uh, well, my long-term vision is that now that we've been in business for five years, I'm ready to go back to the people we started with and check in and say, all right, is it time for a film? Now you've been on social, you know, a lot of times we work with people to get on social media. Okay. You've been on social media for a couple of years. How's it going? Do you have an audience? What are they interested in? Can we do something bigger now? So I would say my vision for the future isn't radically different than it is now. Um, Hopefully we're all like financially secure and, and our marketing continues to just like wind back more and more because there's just enough organic interest and we don't have to do anything for that. That's kind of the long-term vision Mm -hmm. is we're just like easily busy all the time, but I don't want the team to get like huge. I, I believe in the idea of staying intentionally small as a business. I have read books and adhere to the philosophy that not all growth is good. Um, I feel like the ecological history of our world has shown us that not all growth is good. For sure. And that scales to like over harvesting the planet and over stretching ourselves and building these systems that act more like cages instead of somewhere we really want to be. So I am not hoping that our team gets too much bigger. I just hope that everything gets easier and more stable and Um, you know, we have had really incredible, uh, return rates of our customers. It does help to be in a niche and there are not very many people here. So it's like, yeah, okay. We did our website and now they are ready for a film or photo or, or something bigger and weirder. Uh, and we're kind of their go-to person, which Mm -hmm. I love. Um, so I just hope like, you know, as we work with more and more people, all we're doing is building in this robustness of like a larger and larger group that comes to us all the time for everything. So I feel like the way the business is set up, it only becomes more robust over time without doing anything other than really good work for every person so that they come back. That's our strategy. Um, What a very nice, yeah, honest response. I really like that a lot. yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing all that stuff about your company. I obviously love it. And I obviously love talking to you. Um, but let's, let's, let's just end the show in the last 10 minutes here with some just like opinion questions. Like, I'm curious what you think, because we've talked about this stuff, what you think is like the most pressing challenges of our time right now, obviously coming from the ecological point of view. Yeah, well, I, you know, I would always waver between the biodiversity crisis and mass extinctions um, versus climate change, same. where it's like the two are connected, but I would say the wildfires of, well, this is okay. Actually, I would step back and say, okay, well, are we most concerned about people or are we most concerned about ecosystems? Biodiversity. Yeah. The biodiversity crisis to me is way more worrying about the crumbling of ecosystems, which buys us a handful of years before we'll feel that as people climate change, it turns out like breathing in smoke and ash and all of these, you know, fires happening, like that is an immediate threat to people. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, pollution, 
destroying our water or running out of it. I do think like climate change is producing all of these very immediate risks for humans. Right. Humans don't tend to be my top priority. <laughs> I tend to, I tend to, you know, worry about ecosystems first, but I think they, they have a lot longer time span than we do. They are more robust than we are. How, how do you mean? Well, I think, you know, I think if we run out of water or the air isn't safe to breathe, we're going to go first. Humans mm-hmm. will be wiped out and then the ecosystem will take some time, but it will rebound. Um, and possibly a new evolutionary trajectory will will turn a mammal into a human again someday, but mm. but probably not. You know, humans, this is kind of our shot. Yeah. We, we have we have colonized the earth. Um, this is our era and uh, and we, and if we don't take care of it, then we're gonna go before the world itself. Well, here's something I think about, because obviously I have to, I feel if I don't focus on a specific thing, I won't be as effective. So I think about, of course, it's not a dichotomy, but like a world where we really focus on, on, we put all our resources into fixing the climate crisis and stabilizing the climate, but we use all the resources on earth to do that because we've already tipped it so far that we need to put it into hyperdrive and we continue cutting down forests and killing all these animals. And then we create these direct air capture machines and stabilize the climate. And then we live in a world where there's lots of people, but all the ecosystems are gone versus like i guess there's no verses i don't know i just wanted to see what you think of that because i that's something I, I can concern myself with when i'm always working on climate action and i don't have a solution to uh mass extinction or loss of biodiversity because we just we're just dominating the planet like there's the 50 by 50 and the 30 by 30 that could help but you know it just seems like we just people just don't care like we eat animals that have like grown up in cages like i was looking at a sign at like the grocery store yesterday that like most of the eggs that we eat come from like chickens that like live in like this much space like it's clear that people really don't care that much about like other beings i don't know i just wanted to ask you about that yeah yeah well i I don't think we can engineer our own survival without ecosystems. We're smart, mm-hmm. but we're not that smart as it is like, okay, I don't think we would even be capable of, you know, hand pollinating half of the things we need pollinated mm-hmm. to eat. And it is like the bees, you know, okay, we've developed systems where we truck them around and we try and like control these things. But as soon as they go, a lot of our food goes and, you know, like we can engineer solutions for water, but once the system collapses, we're pretty toast. So I do, I do think, um, I think humans are far less robust than they think. Um, I mean, I, I feel like COVID is, is a perfect example. There are all these examples in nature where it's like when the density of a single species gets too high, something is going to come restore balance, disease, virus, fungus. I don't know. You know, like we have, we have all these density dependent responses. And if, if there's only one species, it becomes really easy to specialize on our weaknesses as COVID is, is proving like, Oh, very quickly Mm -hmm. that virus figured out, let's do this. And then we're going to do that. And Oh, they can, they're smart, but they're not that smart. You know, like we can, we can, it's only one species here. It's very easy to specialize. So I, I just think, you know, they have done so much work on, on connecting biodiversity to viruses, parasites, um, just like our risks 
are so tightly connected. Um, I don't think we would last that long. Um, so anyway, I would not say that we should kind of continue at this accelerated rate of like consumption. But I think we've talked about this. I, the hardest part in the world to change is the consumptive behavior, um, which is a major part of the problem. But as someone was educating me, it has been kind of a, a, a peacekeeping tool since yeah. the last world wars um, that, you know, like part of the part of the system of peace is engineering an economy that's entirely dependent on each other. You know, mm -hmm. we can't fight with China because we need them. We can't fight with the Middle East because we need them. Um, and these systems that are, you know, sort of perpetuated by uh, the idea that, oh, we just like, we need to buy, consume mm -hmm. and buy to support each other, um, that that is inherently problematic. Um, so to me on the human side, like, okay, we need to sort of get consumptive behavior under control, but now you're up against so many systems and so much money and decades of sort of using that to keep people happy and placated. And I don't know. There's no, it's not clear answers. What I'll say is, is moving forward on this show, I really want to start exploring the ideas of regeneration. And then I want to explore sequestration as well, which is like a very pragmatic solution to like fixing the climate. Yeah. This, yeah. This idea that life exists and when one thing lives, it allows for another thing to live in synchrony with it. It's, there's so many examples of it out there. It just yeah. seems like we, it's, it's, it's possible for us to do it. Um, yeah. Like last couple questions, like what, how do you think we can do a better job of like communicating these solutions when we do, when scientists do inevitably discover them, how can we like effectively communicate them to the public? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, and I was thinking, I mean, you just mentioned like sequestration is, you know, that's, that's the new discussion in climate change work because yeah, we thought and I mean, this is all back to like science is iterative. We thought that we could cut off enough carbon production um, to stop what was happening. And it turns out that's just not enough. We're, it's not, we're not going to get there. Now we have to start actually sequestering and aggressively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Oh. That is a whole new series of, of tools and technologies and approaches. Um, and then the newest piece of restoration, like you know, pulling it out of the atmosphere is going to be really hard. But if we restore natural systems that do that as their daily job anyway, mm -hmm. and then, you know, bury it and store it for eons, wetlands, healthy soil, big forests, like all of these things we need to rebuild. And so one thing I do think that's working in our favor is there are a lot of people who are ready to work and nature is extremely resilient. Ecosystems are extremely resilient. So if we just put all of these people to work restoring ecosystems, the ecosystems will respond. They will do their job. Um, so how do we transition the energy from like, okay, you know, we have fought the oil companies and we've gotten, you know, we've gotten 80, I don't know, maybe let's say 80% of the way there, people know like gasoline, bad, coal, bad. Um, are we going to put all of our energy into that last 20% to like bury those industries entirely? Or can we start to use that to progress like restoration or sequestration or um, 
you know, focus on these other things where we have still have a major gains to have easily, you know? Yeah. Restoration is so easy for the most part because nature does the work. Exactly. So I agree. I think we should we should shift to more of the sequestration, restoration, emphasis on restoration because it has all of these indirect benefits for wildlife, biodiversity, things that fight disease, things that produce food, things that keep the ecosystem functioning also, whereas sequestration doesn't really do that. So very good. Yeah. And we just got to make sure restoration for sure. And we just got to make sure people get the message and thanks to people like you, you're going to make it happen. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure chatting with you, as you know, um, last question, any advice for young people who are passionate about, you know, aiding in these issues? Uh, start planting trees, um, start looking into, yeah, restoration groups. And I, I feel like that is grassroots and easy to, to get into. And um, it just requires boots on the ground, fighting the politics of, of um, carbon management. A lot of us have tried hard and felt very unempowered. We vote. Voting is, of course, a major, major uh, influencer. Um, but yeah, it's like, gosh, how do we take on the oil industry? Well, we bike you know, eat less meat, have two or fewer children. They're the handful of like major life decisions that science has continued to reinforce as important. Ride your bike, eat less meat, have two or fewer children. So those are my three must-haves. Yeah. And then from there, you know, do everything you can in your day-to-day life. For sure. I think it's going to become a lot easier with the proliferation of all these, these ideas. I'm going to take all my strength and try to push this, this, these regenerative practices as much as I can. Cause I just love the idea that like we're in, in the shits now. And if we like create all or do all these things that make the world better and it's all like plant all these seeds by the time that I have kids or that my kids have kids, like it could be way better than it was a hundred years ago. And that's something that keeps me really optimistic, powered and wanted to move forward. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I just watched a TED talk this morning from Revive and Restore. They're the Mm -hmm. ones that um, just cloned the black-footed ferret. (laughs) And it's like, there are places where biotech is stepping in and making a big difference. So for the, for the first time they were able to take 30, 33 year old um, tissue samples from a species that had, had bottlenecked. And basically I think there's like 700 black-footed ferrets that came from seven individuals kind of thing. They have bottlenecked so badly. They are so desperate for genetic diversity. Um, so this biotech company is coming in and actually using the technology to, um, trying to remember how they got this tissue sample from a museum maybe. And they were able to clone an individual that has 10 times more genetic diversity than any living black footed ferret Wow! because they're from the old days. And so like, they are starting to figure out how to use biotech to restore genetic diversity, which to me is another one of these like major conservation issues where we were mm-hmm. sitting around being like, what do we do? It's happened over and over and over. We shot them all down to five. We've rebuilt a population of a thousand from five individuals and they're so vulnerable for all yeah. the reasons. 
Um, but finally, we're, we're seeing solutions to that even. So there are things to be hopeful about. Absolutely. But it's all the, the restoration side of things. For sure. Let's keep iterating. Keep iterating. Yeah. <sighs> yes. Kika, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Always an honor talking to you. And thank you for choosing Climate Change Realty for your real estate transactions as well. Oh, thank you so much. I wouldn't, wouldn't do it any other way. Very good. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, we will be back next week with another episode. Take it easy. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.